Every year, every year, it's the same thing. Ken mentioned it earlier, but what should we get Dad for Father's Day? Cargo pants? Maybe. What should we get Dad for Father's Day? He has everything, and he doesn't want anything, especially the presents that we buy are usually with his money, so he doesn't want you spending it. So what do you get him? What do you get, Dad, on Father's Day? What does he really want? That's the big question. What does Dad really want? Well, I'm a dad, but I think I know what all dads really want. In fact, when you hear this, I think this is something you really want. What does dad want? Do you know? Well, it isn't sparkly or expensive. You can actually put that first slide up there, Cher. It isn't sparkly or expensive. You don't find it on Craigslist. We're down the aisles of Home Depot. You won't find it there. It requires no assembly, no batteries, and like I said earlier, this will not affect his bank account. So it's a nice gift. What every dad wants is one thing, if you really want to know. What they want is to rest satisfied. To rest satisfied. In, in Russian, they have a phrase for this. It's called, you, take a, you sit down at the table, you take a deep breath, and then you say, Harasho Sadim. That means how good we sit. We are resting satisfied. But you need both of these words for the gift to really be worth it. Because rest, I'll be honest with you, for most dads, is always accompanied with the nagging voice in the back of your mind that says, If I rest right now, I am going to pay for it later. I'm going to pay. Amen. I heard an amen. Either the work will keep stacking up if I take vacation or rest, or, and I hate to say it like this, but this is the way guys, guys think, if my wife gives me time off, I will have to give her or more equal time off than what she gave me. And then if I take a rest, the kids will think I'm a slacker and I don't want to hang out with them. It's hard to rest. So it seems like, even though we try to rest, in the back of every dad's mind is discontent. Rest really is not that satisfying. And then we talk about satisfaction. Satisfaction usually comes after I have extended all the work and effort to get it. And it seems like work is never finished. It's never done. It's like taking a family on a, a four and a long vacation trip. You arrive at the destination. It's sort of satisfying, but then you have to unpack. And then you've got to cook. Then you got to clean, and then you got to repack to leave to go home. It's you're 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 not really fully satisfied. So in a sense, rest and satisfaction together seems too good to be true. I mean, to really have it where you rest and are satisfied. Can you honestly ha imagine having those where your soul is just? You take a deep breath, and everything's okay. Your mind stops, and it's fine. I think that's why guys go fishing. Because at least your mind's sort of occupied on things that don't bring up to everything else that's waiting behind you. Did you know Scripture says it is possible, though, to have rest that's satisfying? It's possible. And to do that, I'd like you to turn into the book of Proverbs, going into our second week in our study on wisdom through the book of Proverbs. I'd like you to go to chapter 19, verse 23. 
I was given this encouragement last week. I'm going to point out one verse that possibly you might consider memorizing all week long. Just really go over this. This verse is the verse that I'm choosing if you want to memorize one. It's Proverbs 19, 23. And in this verse, you will find the key to how to find rest that's satisfying. See if you can figure it out. It's a very simple verse. 19.23 The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it, possesses it, really lives in it, rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. So last week we talked about wisdom. This week we're talking about fear. So the subject this week is the fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs starts right off with fear. If you go to chapter 1, verse 7, we need to understand what he means by the fear of the Lord. Because once we understand it, we're going to ask the question, what is it? How do we obtain it? When you have it, what does your life look like? And why do we need it so bad? That's going to be our discussion. And so we need to discuss fear. In verse 7 of chapter 1, Solomon seems to say fear is the key ingredient, actually the whole book of Proverbs, to wisdom, to getting understanding. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Parallel verses are in this where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom. So he's exchanging knowledge and wisdom as the same idea. So really fear of the Lord is what gives us wisdom. What does fear mean? Well, the Hebrew word here literally means, it literally means dread. It means dread. Fear is a hard word because what you're going to see is there's two words that are going to be mingled together and they seem completely incompatible. But they are both contained in this word fear and the first idea of fear is dread. It literally means, the Hebrew literally means, be, awa- be afraid so much so that you realize you are an abject terror. So to fear God means you need to be terrified of Him? That doesn't seem to be right. Actually, people don't like this. When you say fear the Lord means to be terrified of the Lord, some people really recoil at that. I've heard people say, how can you worship a being you're scared of? Well, fear in this, in this sense is, it's not, it's not, has nothing to do with my relationship. It's everything to do with my physical presence. When I meet God, my natural response will be terror. I cannot look at God face to face in this body that I have right now, or I'll die. That's just the fact. So you could say it like this. This type of fear is a natural response to the reality of who God is. Abject terror. Proverbs 9.10 says, you can read this later, but it says, when you have fear, you hate evil. What's interesting is, well, actually, it's, it's, I'm sorry, that's the wrong proverb. Proverbs 9.10 says, let me read it for you. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One brings insight. So what this is saying is that the fear of the Lord is related to knowledge of His holiness. 
has something to do with his holiness. Holiness is that the idea that God has no spot, he has no wrinkle, he has no stain. He's thoroughly pure. And that's why we need to fear him because we are not pure by any means. By any means. I want you to go to Psalm 2 a second. Psalm chapter 2. Psalms is right before Proverbs. I want you to look at verse 2. This is the psalm of the Lord's anointed one. It's going to be a psalm about he who sits at the right hand of the Father, his anointed king. And look at verses 10 through 12 in Psalm 2. Verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. So he's giving a call to all of the leaders of the earth, and he says, listen, be wise, be warned. The idea is that watch your step. Why? Because of verse 11. We are to serve the Lord with fear, and we are to rejoice with Trembling, so the idea of fear has trembling next to it. Kiss the sun, that means pay, pay homage, pay adoration to the sun. Why? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. This is the idea that be careful around the king because he's dangerous. So dangerous, you should be kind of terrified when you enter his presence. Listen to what A.W. Tozier talks, says about the holiness of God. I'm going to read it slow because I, this is an amazing verse or statement. He says, God is not now, at this moment, God is not now any holier than he ever was. And he never was holier than he is right now. That, that statement enough should cause us to tremble because they couldn't even walk close to Mount Sinai and touch the mountain when the law was given or they'd die. He was holy back then. He goes on to say, He did not get his holiness from anyone nor from anywhere. He himself is the holiness. He is the all-holy, the holy one. He is holiness itself beyond the power of thought to grasp or of word to express, beyond the power of all praise. Language cannot express the holy, so God resorts to association and suggestion. He cannot say it outright because he would have to use words for which we know no meaning. So when we say holy, we really don't know what we're talking about is what he's saying. He would have to translate it down to our unholiness. If he were to tell us how white he is, we would understand it in terms of only dingy gray. We come into the presence of God with tainted souls. We come with our own concept of morality, having learned it from books, from newspapers, and from school. We come to God dirty. Our whitest white is dirty. Our churches are dirty, and our thoughts are dirty, and we do nothing about it. If we came to God dirty, but trembling and shocked and awestruck in his presence, if we knelt at his feet and cried with Isaiah, I am done because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I could understand... But we skip into his awful presence. We're forgetting holiness without which no man can seem the Lord. That's heavy. I mean, even reading it, I think my thoughts have been so dirty just living in this world 
that I really can't fully understand what he's saying and the seriousness of, of what he's saying. It's sort of like what my, what my wife hates the most is when I wear my t-shirts. Because I'll wear the same t-shirt for seven years straight. She'll say, Chris, that, that t-shirt's dingy. No, it's nice. It's white. She goes, Chris, take it off. That's an ugly, I'll buy you new t-shirts. Because after you wear them a couple times, after you dig a hole in the backyard and you wipe the dirt on it and then you try to wash it, it's still, it's dingy. Our minds and souls have been dingy because you know what you watch and listen to. He's holy. The second aspect of fear, to me, it's almost completely contradictory, is the idea that I love him. Like when we sing that Christmas song, Oh, come let us adore him. That fear has the idea of adoration. That I love him. Proverbs 18, this is what I was referring to earlier, Proverbs 18 says, he who fears the Lord hates what's evil. And then the idea of hatred of evil in Psalm 97.10 says, I love him so much that I hate evil. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 13. Love hates what is evil. So the idea here is a fear of the Lord is akin to loving him. I love him. And because I love him, we're going to talk about it in a second, I hate evil. That's why we just got done reading Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2 again. And look at how verse 11 is written. It says, serve the Lord with fear. And then it says, it doesn't say just tremble. It says rejoice with trembling. Rejoicing can only be from somebody I love. I find joy in the man I, or the God I tremble at. That is really odd, that statement. Rejoice with trembling. I tremble because of his awesomeness, but I love him because his awesomeness is for me. That's amazing. That's amazing. This aspect of fear is formed over time through a nurtured relationship. The first one, fear of dread, is a natural response. Love is a nurtured relationship. I grow in relationship with the one I love. God is complex. He's invisible. He's nothing like me. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 21. It has the same idea. Both concepts are mingled. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 21. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. To walk in his ways. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heavens of heavens. The earth with all that's in it. Yes, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring. Then he goes on for 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Verse 19. Love the sojourner because God loves you. Verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. So this whole idea that I'm to fear him but I'm to love him. He's my praise. He's my God. How do you do that when you can't see him? Because he's invisible. 
He's immortal, he's invisible, and he's the only wise God. So how do I love invisibility? Or you can say it like this. Fear is, to some degree, we think fear is only a response to present danger. An imminent threat is coming, so I'm scared. But the biblical idea of fear, it's a state of being. It's not just fear, it's how I dwell. I dwell in fear. And to be in the state of being, I can acquire fear. I can learn it and own it. And so Proverbs tells us how to acquire it. Gives us some hints. And it tells us two Proverbs 1, verse 24 and 25, infers something. Read along with me in verse 24 and 25 of Proverbs 1. doesn't say it outright, but there's an inference here. And he's talking about wisdom, but he's also talking about fear. I have called, and you, talking to the fool, the simple man, and we read this last week, I have called and you've refused to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would not and would have none of my reproof. So the two ways we acquire fear is the first is we need to learn to listen. And here the fool, the reason he's a fool is because he doesn't listen. He ignores God when he speaks. Do you want fear? Like acquire it to really have it where I love this God but I'm but you know, the more I learn about them, I'm terrified of them. Then listen. I think here's, there's a lot of sins of our generation. But I think the secret sin, the sin that people don't talk about too much, actually Pascal, the ancient philosopher, talk about this all the time. The secret sin of our generation is, I think, distraction. We are so occupied by the noise and the busyness of life, especially the infinite array of entertainment. There's so much to do, we don't have time to listen to God anymore. We just have too much to do, too much to listen to, too many Netflix series to watch. We just have too much. And still, his voice, his still small voice, is drowned out by the screams of folly and amusement. They're always louder. I was, as I was meditating on this thought, I, was, I had about a 40-minute drive to go to somewhere. And I decided to turn off the radio because I think, I, I realize I'm addicted to sports radio. I love it. I'm addicted to it. So I said, you know what? I am going to turn it off. I, I took a two-year fast when I first was saved. I was so addicted to sports. I was listening to a Christian radio show, and they said, you know what, you need to go on a sports fast. Don't watch it, don't listen to it. Do it for a couple months and you'll see what happens. I did it for two years and I wrote down all the things I did because I'm not distracted. And I would start to memorize scripture, read theology. I would spend more time with my kids because I'm not distracted. We are numbing ourselves to death, as one book writes, with the distracting voices of movies, music, video games, YouTube hilarities, Facebook banter, talk, 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 talk. Turn it off. Just turn it off. And you'll begin to rest. The second step we find in Proverbs chapter 2, 3 through 5. This is more direct. Proverbs 2, 3 through 5. Solomon writes, if you call out for insight... 
and raise your voice for understanding, saying, I want to learn. If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. So you have to understand it by searching for it. It's understanding. You don't just listen, but you let it sink in. You strive to understand who this God is we serve. You want a great psalm to just, here's a psalm for you. I'll give you an incredible psalm. Psalm 139. Just study it. Do it this week. Maybe every morning you wake up this week, read Psalm 139 without distractions. And it is, it gives you in an, a window to who God is. Let me just read a little bit of it for you. Psalm 139. It says, O oh Lord, you've searched me and know, know me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it. Wow, this, so God knows my thoughts? Yeah. Even before it's on my tongue. Ooh, that, that should scare you. <laughs> that, let's not go any farther. That should scare you. Meditate on this. One of my all-time favorite verses, it's one of my favorite chapters of Scripture, is Job 31. You don't have to turn there, but Job is, he's evaluating his life, and he's kind of thinking, you know, maybe I did sin. So he started evaluating his life in Job 31 to see if he was blameless in different areas. And he said, yeah, I am blameless. And then he gets to verse 23 of Job 31, 23. In the NIV it says, Job is talking about all the sins he doesn't do and he gives the motive for why he doesn't do it. Here's his motive why he doesn't sin. For fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. That verse blows me away. For fear of his beauty, of his majestic kingly robe and his beauty, I'm not going to sin. It has the idea of terror and love. and It's amazing. I heard R.C. Sproul said this kind of love and fear for God is when you drive by an accident. I might have used this before. You drive by a horrendous accident. You don't want to look, but you want to look. God is like that. You don't want to look, but you, you, you're compelled. You want to look. As I was trying to imagine what God was like, I, I was thinking about going camping with your dad. Have you ever gone camping with your dad? I mean, let's say about 10 or 2, let's say 2 weeks maybe. Did you ever sleep in a tent with your dad for a week or two? You really learn about him. You learn about what he's like on the tough trails or when you got to carry an extra backpack. You learn who your dad is. You learn what he talks about around the fire. It's interesting. And as I was thinking about this, try to imagine if you went camping with God. What would it be like going camping with God for two weeks? You shared a tent with him for two weeks. What would conversation be like around the fire at night? If God was there sitting with you, what would you talk about? What would he be like on the difficult trails when you couldn't carry everything? Do you think he'd help you? What if you twist your ankle? You think he'd laugh at you and mock you? Like some dads do? Oh, suck it up. You think God would say that to you? What would he say 
If a bear showed up at the campsite, would he be scared? Would I be scared? No, God's with me. God will tell the bear to leave, and the bear has no other choice. God would be amazing to go camping with. I bet God would be more enjoyable than we could ever imagine. I bet you'd laugh more than you could think. Did you know there's a couple places in Scripture where it says when Jesus was his, with his disciples, they would sing? Could you imagine God just breaking out in song? I'll bet you his voice is amazing. I would fear his power but I'd love having him with me. What, what if a storm came or there's thunder and lightning, a forest fire, a robber, a poisonous snake? What if there's no water to drink? He'd strike a rock. So this leads me to the next question, I think. Do you fear God? How do you know if you fear God? What is a person like when they fear God? Proverbs gives us a lot of clues, but there's three that stick out. The first one we find in Proverbs 8.13. This is the one I talked about already, but you need to take a look at it. Proverbs 8.13. And read the whole, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And listen to what he also hates. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate. I hate it. I hate it. Fear hates evil. Hates it. If you love God, I believe you too will hate evil. If God was really camping with you, do you think he'd be telling any dirty jokes? If God went camping with you, would, would you be mocking people around the fire? I don't think he'd put up with it. If, if God went camping with you, would you sleep with your girlfriend in the same tent he was sleeping in with you? Never. Here's the deeper issue. We have convinced ourselves invisibility means inability or absence. Because he's invisible, we don't think he's around. The truth of the matter is, we're camping with him every day because he's tenting in me. I'm the tent where he dwells. The Holy Spirit lives in me. Everywhere I go, God is on camp out in me. That's the point. That's why he sent the Spirit. That's why we are his mobile tent. The Old Testament temple was static. Now you yourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God goes camping with me every day. Do we live like he does? I was reading this book. It's a, it's a horrible book, and it's a book about as detailing the clerical abuse that happens in some Christian denominations, especially pedophilia. And this writer is a lawyer who's defended some ministers that have committed some of the most heinous acts and one of the reasons they got away with it is this thing called mental reservation. It's actually, it's a hidden secret in some denomination called mental reservation. And the lawyer who helped defend some of these deviant ministers said mental reservation was first introduced in the writings of ancient theologians in the Middle Ages. Mental reservation is a form of moral lying about matters that could bring scandal on the institutional church. But you don't want scandal on the church, so what would happen 
is you would tell the truth to God in confession, but then you'd lie to the human about what's really going on. So it keeps, you know, keeps the scandal out of the public. So you tell God in your confession, but you don't, you lie about it to everybody else. So because you don't want to, you don't want to hurt the integrity of the church. But really, it's just the opposite. God's the one we should be most scared of, not the opinion of man. I think we do this all the time. We know we sin, and we say, God, I'm sorry, but we don't tell anybody. Like, that's, I don't want you to go around telling people what you sin about, but stop it. He's the one we should really fear. Fear should teach us to fear God first. I think we see him as an old softy. He's kind of an old man that has gone a little deaf and he can't see as well as he used to. You know, he's been around for a long time, God. He's... Second thing, Proverbs 3, 7. Proverbs 3, verse 7 is the second idea that you can tell you of fear. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And the idea is that Again, this poem means the same idea. Wisdom in your own eyes is conceit or pride. The last verse we read was, fear the Lord hates pride. And so the way you could say it is, fear the Lord teaches you to be humble. You become humble. When I consider his, hum, his, his awesomeness, I understand who I am. Really, Jared said it in Psalm 8 today. What is man that, that you'd consider him God. The heavens, we're nothing compared to him. It's kind of like if I went camping with God and I had an extra load and he took my load, man, I'm nothing compared to God. He could carry all the pack, backpacks and he'd be just fine. And then the third thing is Proverbs 14.26. When you fear God, you don't fear anything else. Look at 14.26. This is so cool. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. What's that mean? That means I'm okay. If God is for me, who can be against me? Honestly, if I'm camping and the bear comes, I don't need to worry. I just stand behind him. That's all I got to do. You've heard the joke, if a bear comes, the person who's the fastest is the one that has the best advantage. If a bear comes and I'm camping with God, I just stand behind him. There's a lot of bears and lions and tigers that are after you. Just If you fear God, you have confidence. Remember, God is camping with you right now. So if I fear God, do I get anything in return? I'm going to, this is Proverbs, and so Proverbs is an image uh, book. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you an image. The first, and I remember one of the very first times I was really scared. And I'm going to make my parents seem bad on this. But when I was about three or four, I snuck down while my parents were watching The Wizard of Oz on TV with my sister. It's Tammy, she's the oldest, so she got to watch it. I wasn't allowed to. I was sent upstairs, but you don't tell that to a curious kid whose mind can't stop. And I walked down. I think I might have been wearing, I think, probably Ohio State University pajamas. 
I walked down it and I sneaked around the couch and I watched some of the Wizard of Oz. And I happened to start watching right when they enter the presence of the wizard. And they're shaking. And the Tin Man's shaking. And that fire's coming out. And as a little kid, I'm like, what are they watching? This is terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, that to me is fear. Like, you know, the scarecrow and then the the lion runs out and he jumps through the window. That was like, I'm telling you, I'm like, what are they, who is this being, Oz? This is scary. And then so then, you know, the Tin Man and the lion, the Scarecrow and Dorothy, they realize Oz, however, has power and he can get them what they want. And they got to get the witch's broomstick and they bring it back. And then they realize there's somebody behind the curtain because Toto the dog isn't, that smart goes behind the curtain, and there's the wizard. He's just a regular guy. But the wizard's able to give him three things. He gives him, if you remember, he gives him three awards. In a way, in a way, God is sort of like that. When you first meet him, he's kind of like when they're terrified. But when, you, when you're allowed in, when you have a relationship and you're allowed in, you realize it's Jesus who is God. And Jesus is amazing. And Jesus gives us rewards when we fear him, when we live for him. And there's two of them. Here's the first one. It's like that same, I am using the Wizard of Oz theme. Jack, I know you'd like that, see? Because I want you to go to 1027. I want you to just let this sink in. When you fear God, when you understand who he is, you realize he's on your side. Look at what verse 27 says. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. But the years of the wicked will be short. Because when you do what God says, He protects you and provides for you. The idea of the law isn't to hurt you. The idea of the law, the idea of commands, because God loves you and He wants to protect you and provide for you through the law. So when I fear him and I do what he says, my life is better. Look at verse 14, 27. The fear of the Lord, it has the same idea. It's a fountain of life. That one may turn away from the snares of death. Not only is it prolonged, but it's better. It's, life becomes sweet when I fear God. I can actually, when I fear God, I can actually put my head on my pillow at night without guilt. Do you know how sweet that is? It's better. Is your life, do you feel, do you feel always exhausted, always behind the eight ball, and always shamed of yourself? That's not life, that's death. But the fear of the Lord, when I live in behind Him, life becomes just alive. The second gift, it's like that courage award, but it's honor. Look at this one. This is 22.4. This is the reward you get for the fear of the Lord. 22.4. The reward for humility, hmm, that's one of the aspects of having fear, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Who doesn't want those three things? 
We talked about riches last week, that the idea of wisdom brings wealth, but wealth isn't just tangible resources, it's sustainable resources. It's, I'm going to be okay, and I have enough, and even more to help other people. But this says, honor. When I fear God, I become solid. I become a different person. I become a person that people say, man, there's a person that's true to his word. He, he's, not like the, he's not like a guy tossed on the waves. He's not like the shifting shadows. He doesn't change his personality for whatever group he's with. He's solid. He's an oak of righteousness. In that people give you honor. Those are the rewards. A life set apart. You're set apart. Well, what Proverbs will say about fear, so we talked about what it is, why we should have it, how you obtain it, what you look like when you have it. I, I think you have to make a choice. Do you want it? There's only two choices, and I want you to go to Proverbs 23.17. And the two choices are very simple. And one represents the wise person who's lit up and the other one's the person who's darker than dark. And this tells you how to get the light. Proverbs 23, 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Do you envy sinners? Or do you continue in fear? Remember, fear hates sin. What this is saying is really somebody who doesn't fear God loves sin and actually wants what the sinner has. Was actually Satan's biggest lie. If you follow God, you're gonna, he's going to hold back the good things from you. Well, it's not true. And then here's the ultimate part of the choice. It's the same idea, but it's 29-25. Twenty nine twenty five. The fear of man lays a snare. And remember, if I envy the sinner and man, and then I am scared of man, lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And the implication, if you fear the Lord, because you use the word fear, if I fear man or God, so really, that's the fear of man. That's the fear of God. It's the, it, Paul gives the same idea in Galatians. Galatians puts it like this. Go to the next line. Here's how Paul puts this. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That's the question. That's the choice. And then the underwritten part of it, if I were still trying to please man, I mean, if that's what I'm trying to do, I'm really not a servant of Christ. I'm just not. I want you to go to one more verse. I want to show you something amazing. And this circles back to the idea of resting satisfied. I want to show you something. Go to Matthew chapter 6. And sometimes you just have to read Matthew 6 in order, in context. This is a verse that has literally, many times in my lowest days, saved my life. This is a verse that has saved my life. 
I think I might have mentioned this about a year or so ago, but I just want you to follow the logic of what Matthew's writing, what Jesus is saying. And it begins, the logic begins in verse 24. It's interesting because you'll see 24 and 25 had a separation, but they're linked. And they're consist- the thought is consistent. Here's what it says in 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And this devotion is the idea of reverential fear. You cannot serve both God and money. And in some older versions say God and mammon. But what money is, is money is given to you so you can do what you want. So in a way, you could say you don't serve God and man, myself. So either you're serving God or you're serving yourself. Money is the means by which you get what you want at the time you want it. So then Jesus says this, so if I choose, let's say I choose to serve God, is there any benefits? Yeah, verse 25 through the end. Verse 25 through the end is meant for those who have chosen to serve God. Fear God. Listen to what he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more important than food? The body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Why would God take care of me? Because I have chosen to serve him. I'm his servant. If I'm his servant, don't you think he'd provide for what I need in order to serve him? If I have somebody work for me, I'm his master, and I go tell him to do a job, don't you think I'll give him the means by which to do that job? So if he's given me life, and my life is in service to him, in praise and glory of him, don't you think he'll give me what I need in order to do that? That's the whole point of this. Keeps going. Verse 27. In which you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. Why do you worry about things? Because I'm concerned. When I'm concerned, see, I'm doing work. Worry is work. No, what Jesus said, worry is stupidity. Worry and anxiety is stupidity because you have a father who's got it taken care of. So stop it. If you're his servant, he'll give you what you need in order to serve him. But if I'm my own God, and i got to take care of myself. I'm worried about everything. I don't have enough money to take care of that. What did you ask God about it? Keep reading. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like one of these. My tiger lilies are going to start coming out. I love the orange in those. You can't make that orange. My astilbes are coming out. I have pink and white. You can't make that pink like that. God takes care of them. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father, your dad, knows you need them. You need them. 
So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Then he, one more addendum, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day of its own trouble. You know how many times he says, don't worry in here? How many times do you worry in a day? The more you worry, the less you fear God. I want to close with one story. It's a Father's Day story. I, some of you don't get tired of my dad's stories, but I was just talking to my son about this a week ago. And this is a story when I feared my dad the most. Here's the scenario. I was sitting at the kitchen table with my dad. We'd often sit at the table. He had this red bowl of peanuts. And we, he would throw a whole bunch out on the table, and we'd crack them and eat them and talk and tell jokes. He just loved doing it. Hey, Chris, come on in here and sit down. We're sitting around the table. He's, we're just eating peanuts. My mom just got home from work, and she's crying. And my dad turns and says, Rita, what's going on? My mom said, I was, at, I was getting into my car, and I opened the door, and it touched this car next to me. Didn't make a dent or anything, but the guy saw, saw that my door hit, and he came and swore me up and down, called me about ten different names. He got my name and number, said he's going to sue me and go to my insurance and get everything he can. My dad said, what? Now, mind you, my dad played college football. He's about 6'1". My dad is a big guy. I... And as a kid, your dad's always a big guy, but my dad said, Rita, give me the number. And his face changed. Like He's not cracking peanuts anymore. Rita, give me the number. Don, what do you, just give me the number. He took this number where the guy lived, got in the car, and the wheels peeled out of our driveway. I said, Mom, where's he going? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And my mom and I were both kind of sitting there like, oh boy, this could be bad. And my dad came in, came in the door, and he's whistling. And I said, Dad, what's, what, Mom, mom said, what, Don, what's going on? Read or nothing, you don't have to worry about it. Don, what did you do? I had words with the guy. Rita, don't worry about it. Don, what did you do? And my dad said, I told him, if he ever talked to my wife like that again, we would have more than words. You can count on it. And the guy dropped the charge and said he'll never contact us again. Sat back down, started cracking peanuts again. I saw my mom. She walked into the kitchen. And you could see her go, she was resting satisfied because somebody fought for her. I have a dad that's better than that, that fights my problems every day. And nobody has words with Jehovah. You can rest satisfied if, if you fear him. Do you?